Hello and welcome to another episode of the Aussie Wisdom Podcast. Today I'm with rugby legend Andrew Slack and uh, we're going to go through whatever it is you'd like to talk about today. As always, I don't know where this is going to go. It's Andrew's turn to, to lead. And uh, while we start, Andrew, what can you tell us about yourself? Normal. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm normal and happy being normal, but you know, we've all got... Um, some sort of talents and skills and I had a bit of talent in rugby and I got a bit of a profile through it and you know through that I ended up sitting here talking to you if I hadn't gotten the wallabies I doubt I would have but um, so you know I think sometimes we over um, lord sporting people um, you know I'd, I'd rather be able to sing and play the piano and mandolin and guitar than be a footy person but you know you don't get everything yeah um, so, you know, I do feel that um, sometimes the, the pedestal on which we put sporting people is a bit too high and, and I think it's a consequence of that is occasionally some of those sporting people don't handle the reality that in truth they are just normal. Mm. And so it's interesting you say singing or guitar or mandolin, or are you particularly interested in music? No, I love it, absolutely love it. No, I mean, I'm not the worst singer of all time, okay. but I'd be struggling to get off the bench in fourth grade. And I, you know, I just love to be able to to just get out and sing. I can play a few chords on the guitar. And my wife gave me a what do you call it, keyboard for my 59th birthday, so I fiddle with that. But I haven't got any natural ear. And if you know someone sings a tune, I can't work yeah. it out like some of these amazing musicians can. But you know, yeah. I realised had had that gift, there might have been other problems, you know, you see a lot of musos who, who have difficulty, creativity, I don't know how the brain works, but creativity, given creativity sometimes means you've got, you know, something's missing somewhere else, so you need a crutch here or there, it's, you know, the whole gamut of life's a bit fascinating, but the short answer is I love music and I would like to be good at it. Yeah, and so based on that, um, when you were playing as a team in sport or, or working as a team in life, would you go to concerts together or take in music or anything along those lines? Oh, yeah. yeah, often we, I remember we, 81 Wallaby Tour, we went to see the, the Kinks in Dublin, uh, 78 New Zealand Tour, we went to see, I think it was the last um, Little River Band concert of a world tour and they were sort of high in the, you know, hit charts, all that sort of jazz. So we went and saw, um, I always forget Tim and Neil Finn's first band, most sort of early band in Fongerain, New Zealand, with the Queensland side. I think it was Queensland side. It might have been Wallaby side in '82, and um, uh, they were staying at the same hotel. Split ends, split ends. So we went and saw them, and um, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, there's more that I can't think of, but yes, it's the sort of thing we would would go to. You know, we'd go on tours. We'd be months and months away, so you know it's only so many late-night toasted sandwiches you can have with each other. So you, you know you try and find alternative things to do, and if there was music around, yeah. um, you know we'd, we'd try and get along. Does that mean that also as a group you'd probably do a bit of singing together? The Australian, we we did. You know, I would take a guitar, but as I, say, I was crummy, yeah. uh, but there was never there was one guy early on in, um, who was pretty good, um, Greg Shambrook, but he didn't. You know, he didn't have a long career on the representative front, yeah. um, so I was left to, to me, and you know, I wasn't great, but occasionally the blokes would humour me, and after a few drinks we'd 
we'd do something. But I've always sort of regretted that you know Australians weren't as um, they were sort of embarrassed about singing like the Welsh and the Kiwis and the Irish and all those teams. I remember on a tour in, in Scotland in '81, we played the north of Scotland and Aberdeen, and then in those days you'd come back and you'd have a, a dinner together with the opposition, and it was you know it was fantastic. And and they asked us to sing, you know they they got up, the whole team got up and sang the Northern Lights of Aberdeen, and we all had a few drinks and we'd won as well, so we felt good. Um, and it was just beautiful, and they could all sing, and it was a lovely atmosphere. And then, you know, they asked us to sing, and we got up and sang a pretty flat Walsh Matilda, I reckon. But at least we had a go. But it, it wasn't natural for sporting teams. I think now, within Australian rugby um, teams, the whole Polynesian influence has maybe enhanced the music side of it. They're, yeah. You know, they're, they're good singers, and it's a part of their their go. But um, yeah, we, we would try, but, you know, there's always music on the bus and guys like music, but they weren't, you know, we, we weren't rugby's answer to Coldplay. <laughs> so you spoke about um, talents and and sort of developing talents over time. What it, What is it that you think you're particularly good at that's that's helped you do what you've oh, done? I, I'm probably a pretty good listener and... Um, you know, I can. I sometimes think of me in conversations. Think, God, I wish I'd have shut up a bit more, because um, you know, I can sometimes babble on and turn a sentence into a paragraph. But I think, by and large, I can cut myself off and and listen well enough to try and get and understand the people I'm involved with. And you know, I don't know why. And it, you know, you're not pumping up your own tide, but you know, I care about how, how people feel. And you know, is that my mother? Did she engender that? Was it school? Was it the mates? It just is. You know, I, I like to like people. I like to be liked. Mm. Uh, and so it's easy to listen and, and be interested in people. And so that all helped in that, you know, sort of, I guess, falling into the leadership thing in rugby because, you know, I am keen on how, how people work. Mm. And do you think that listening at the moment is probably an underrated skill? Um, yeah, it probably is. Well, I think it's probably always been an underrated skill. Um, people who best need to listen aren't listening to being told to listen. Um, uh, you know, I think talking's an underrated skill now. Mm. Uh, on the other side of the coin, and you know, we had this discussion. I'm, I'm not a Facebook, Twitter, IT kind of person. You know, just sort of a half a generation beyond it. Although, you know, a lot of my generation jumped onto it and understand it. But, you know, I, I had a. a a, uh, an occasion a couple of nights ago I went to a concert funnily enough mm -hmm. and my cousin and I were exchanging texts because he'd invite us and because we actually didn't speak mm -hmm. it was just a, a text conversation um, there was a misunderstanding not that it particularly mattered but had we picked up the phone and talked to each other mm -hmm. that misunderstanding wouldn't wouldn't happen so yeah. you know I, I'm as guilty as anyone of emailing or texting um, not as guilty as anyone, I'm probably less guilty than a lot, but I am guilty of doing it when really a lot of time and a lot of potential hassle can be saved by actually talking to someone. Yeah. So the more we talk, the more people are forced to listen. So if we can get a bit more talking happening and then we're conscious of listening, that'll all work. But again, answer your question, do we need to listen more? Yep, but we need to talk more too. Mm. And then 
the one thing I've noticed um, working with younger generations is that quite often they don't necessarily want to speak in person or on the phone. They definitely don't want to speak on the phone unless it's via text. Mm. And obviously you mentioned that you had a conversation with your cousin whose family and he couldn't understand where you were trying to go or you couldn't understand him because it was text but you probably could have had a 30 second phone conversation could have got the message across. Yeah, yeah, the, the mix up would have been avoided with a chat. Um, and you know, th this was like a minor issue. We laughed like hell about it in the end. You know, yeah. Mickey had him texting, and but I was as guilty as he was. Um, but yeah, so and but kids, you know, you're saying kids are a bit reluctant to talk because that's that's what they've grown up with, yeah. and their immediate go-to action, as opposed to what we're doing or just ringing. And you know, the number of stories I hear about offices where you know some girl's in a cubicle here and the guy's there and she wants to talk to him so rather than say, hey Bill, here I am, email. I mean, yeah. you know, it just, it, uh, I don't understand it. But it's, it, things become a habit and that's a habit now and so so kids are reluctant to talk, they don't get to listen, um, they don't get to analyse and so as wonderful as this whole avalanche of IT and, and uh, stuff like that, communication advances has taken the world. It's also taken us a few steps back in our, one of using maybe too lofty a term, our humanity really. Yeah. Um, so we need to douse that fire a bit. Do you think sport could help with that kind of thing? Well, they're no better. <laughs> they're just people too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I don't know particularly. I think it can help a heck of a lot of things, Yeah. Uh, sport. Um, I'm not sure how in that specific area it helps. I mean, a lot of the promotion of of sport now is done through social media things. I understand that's commercial reality. Yeah. Um, I, I think again, you know, if you come back to coaches in sport, um, you know, I think it's important that within the framework of their team that they don't allow their guys to be consumed by um, machines, by phones or whatever. So that you know, if they go on a camp. You know, put your phones in the box for six hours and let's have a yarn and, you know, that old fact. Well, it wasn't old fashioned, you just had to do because you didn't have phones in yeah. 30 years ago. You, you had to talk to each other and you loved talking to each other. Yeah. So I think, you know, if they got in the habit of talking to each other, you know, a regular habit mm -hmm. um, in, in their spare time, uh, I think everyone, everybody would be better off. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure in that particular area where, where sport has an influence apart from the fact that sporting stars have an influence because they're sporting stars and if someone gets to know them and, and then they push that barrow, well, maybe it'll trickle down. Mm. And is there anything that you do regularly to help you build social connections? I text my mates notes. No, I don't think about that. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't, I have no idea. I just, you know, talk to my friends and talk to somebody and, you know, meet it. You know, there was a new friend you haven't met, are you, met, are you run into somewhere I, you know it's not a not a thing I consciously um, consider yeah and just on meeting new friends there's a lot of mentality out there right having lived overseas or visited other places overseas I think I see it I've seen it in Australia I've also seen it in Canada but I've gone to other countries like parts of South America where 
they're very open to meeting new people. Is that is that something that you value, or are you quite happy with the the group that you've got? Uh, yes, to both of them. Very happy with my bunch of friends, and yeah. you know, thank God I got got plenty of them. Yeah. Um, but every one of them was a new one at some stage. Exactly. So if I took the view that you know I didn't want to meet new friends, I'd you know take myself back sixty three years. I'd have none. Mm. So you know that's that's a defeatist kind of a, a guy. He said it flippantly. Um, a, a footy commentator about he'd criticised somebody, and he sort of flippantly said, you know, "I don't care if he, he's up me for criticising. I've got I don't need any more new friends." Well, every it's a joke, I suppose. Yeah. But you know, some people think that way, yeah. um, and it's a dumb way to think because everyone needs new friends. Um, do I at my age and stage with a happy and an extended bunch of friends go necessarily chasing it? No, but I certainly don't avoid it. I don't say, oh, I'm not going to do this because, you know, I might have to talk to somebody I don't know. Yeah. Because that somebody I don't know could end up being a great pal, you know. As, yeah, yeah. As I was on the phone to a friend coming here this morning who's, you know, 15 years more, you know, 15 or something years younger than me, I only met him a few years ago, he and his brother and I were great friends and you know, had a we not had a conversation but that was just life and we met and so mm -hmm. close you off close yourself off to nothing, I'd have thought, on the friendship front. Yeah. And then obviously you have an interest in people. Does that mean that you're also interested in biographies and autobiographies and that kind of thing? Oh yeah, not not overly. I mean they can be dull. Yeah. I mean you if I wrote an autobiography, you know, you have sleep issues, and it could be good for you. You know, there's elements in my life that are interesting enough, but there's a very few people that, you know, don't want to read 600 pages on. There's not a lot of Nelson Mandela's or yeah, whatever around. You know, I used yeah. to read sporting biographies as a kid because I liked sport and yeah, and I was impressionable. Yeah, but I don't think I'm going to reread any of them now. Yeah. Um, but you know, some some are. I'm I'm interested. I'd, I'd rather talk to you about you than you know read your book. Yeah, exactly. No offence. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And just on that, so obviously we've all got some dull parts in our lives. If you were to sort of name a couple of things that you've done that you'd want to make sure were included in your autobiography, what would they be? Not dull ones. Not dull ones, ideally. Right. Yeah. Not dull ones. Um, you know, I honestly don't know what um, would thrill the world if I had a book. Yeah. What particular chapter? Jeez, I've got to get to that chapter. Yeah, yeah. Know, I really, I really can't think of any. You know, I'm trying to, you know, look at somebody like um, Michael Ware, for instance, former Reds hooker, mm -hmm. uh, who I was assistant coach when he was in the Queensland team. Mm -hmm. He wasn't there. He didn't play for very long, but he was a most, or is the most interesting fellow. Uh, he ended up going off and, and working, I think, for the New York Times eventually as a, a reporter in when Iraq was, when it was all hitting the fan there, and he was sort of embedded there. And he's led a most interesting and different and fascinating and, uh, in a sense, altruistic kind of life. Now, that's interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. um, me beating Ireland, you know, captaining team to win the Grand Slam is, you know, not everyone does it, 
Mm. But, you know, it's a long time ago and who wants to read about it? Um, unless you're a rugby historian, and I'm not sure how many of those there are. Yeah. So you know what I mean? It's, um, and, and you don't have to be a... Obviously, you know, a lot of normal people out there would have interesting bits yeah, exactly. of lives yeah. um, uh, that, that wouldn't fill a book. But I, I just, again, the question... I, I don't know what part would particularly interest people mm. about my life that you know, goes along the lines of being embedded in Baghdad when, when yeah. bombs were you know, flying around. Is there a certain part of your life that you, you'd replay? If you had the chance, like you had sort of five minutes to live, what's a certain part of your life that you would um, look like? Oh, you know, I've, I've had a lot of, uh, a, lot of a lot of great things happen. You know, yeah. and, you know, a few crummy things, but that's that's just what happens. But um, I remember, and just from a footy point of view, yeah, um, and there, you know, there are other things more important, probably personally. But I remember in. Uh, so we won that Grand Slam in 1984, mm. and then they have we have a final game against the Barbarians, which is all the best of Europe, basically in Cardiff, Cardiff Arms Park, and and we played that and it was good fun. We won. Then I, I, as a captain, I had a room of my own. I remember coming back that night to shower and put on your, you know, your number ones before we went to the the shindig, and I went in the bathroom. I just looked in the mirror, looked in the mirror in my face for about I don't know, a couple of minutes. And said, How did you end up here? How did you get all this sort of luck and I'm sort of looking at myself and also thinking have I gone slightly insane but I remember that moment of just looking and saying well, oh lucky bugger so that's sort of a, yeah. a moment that stays with me yeah did you ever did you ever think that you didn't necessarily deserve to be doing all that you're doing or no no I mean you know I had luck and things fell into place but you know when when the ball bounces off the tree into the hole you still take it as a yeah. Oh, in one, not that I've had one of those. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I think for potentially my ability as a rugby player, which was okay, you know, it was, it was good, solid play, to captain Australia and beat the All Blacks and win the Grand Slam while I'm captain and, you know, get a lot of the kudos. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm lucky and probably undeserving of it, but I got it and I did it and it happened and stiff. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm happy to take it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, has there been outside of outside of capturing the Wallabies and winning Grand Slams and things? Has there been a particular role in life that you've been particularly proud of? Uh, I think um, helping people at, at, in a work situation. I was a teacher and, and I enjoyed teaching. I, I think I'd be a much better teacher, at, you know, at sixty three than I was at twenty three. Because mm-hmm. at twenty three, all I'm thinking about is Andrew Slack and yeah. you know the next footy game and. And while I like the kids, and hopefully they like, you know, we did, we did it enough, but I wouldn't have thought I was the most conscientious educator named a man at mm. that time. Mm. Um, it was a bit of a secondary concern, but, um, you know, I think I'm probably, if someone said, oh, you, what's your vocation? And, you know, it's, it's a good thing to have a vocation, whether it's a doctor or mm. whatever you want to be. So I think my vocation would have been teaching. And so... That background, and then when I end up working in in media, I don't think I was particularly special at you know that. But I was, I think I was good at at helping the team, the guys and girls around me in in trying to help them maximise their abilities and 
maintain their enthusiasm and, and whatever. So that's that's what I think I was good at and pleased looking back on, you know, a professional career at, at having some influence on that front. Mm-hmm. And those skills, do you think you learned them from people around you? Oh, beautiful. No, I, you know, I don't, as I said to you earlier, you know, mum, I had a really nice upbringing. Um, so I didn't ever have to deal with, you know, some of the difficulties that some young people have, be you know, be an economic sense or any other ways. And and I can, you know, a lot of people look back and say, oh, I remember mum saying this and oh, this happened and because we went there and, you know, stayed in my mind and that's why I did. None of that stays, nothing stays in my mind. Yeah. Um, I just, I don't remember any specific thing, but, you know, and I never thought I'd do, I know I'm loved. I never thought that stuff, but, you know, clearly I know I was and it was a great, it was a great up, upbringing um, in a sort of, my mum and her sister brought us up. My dad died when I was very young. And so it was a different upbringing. So I had, you know, I had two women as sort of parental influences. Yeah. Um, uh, but again, you know, love them to death and whatever, but it's, I don't, I can't put a specific thing on how they shaped me, but I have absolutely no doubt they shaped me. So I think that's, you know, probably where it came from. And then my education, again, I, I love my school. I like the way uh, teachers and priests are involved. I know that they're getting a bad rap and, you know, guilty ones are, you know, they're guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I have a lot to thank you know, education, the Catholic education I had, and, you know, I know it's downsides, I know it's upsides, so all those things, you chuck them in the pot and out pops slack, and, you know, yeah. how did he end up getting out of his? I don't know. Yeah. And, you know, there's lots of bits where I wish I was different and better and whatever, because, you know, until we all die, we all wish something, mm. you know, even the most satisfied person in the world wants to have something he or she hadn't got. Yeah. And do you remember any role models in particular? Again, on that, that front, you know, I, none stuck out. I was coached at cricket early on by Wally Grout, but he was a test wicket keeper, and, and he always sort of had an influence. I mean, he died again. He died very young, early 40s, and mm. I was just a kid, but I remember that time I was a bit besotted by this test cricketer, you know, helping me at coaching. And, but um, I think he's a bit of a wide boy, Wally. He didn't mind a drink and a smoke and a punt, so <laughs> I don't know where the, uh, where, where the, you know, if it rubbed off too much, or, but, you know, that was that when I was a kid. I, look, I don't know, I think, I could name none, or I could name a million. Yeah. You know, I could name the footy coach, Bob Temple, I could name the guys I played with from yeah. the Lones and McLeans and Cornelsons, all these sort of people, um, the rugby people would know. So, yeah, all of them had some sort of influence. Um, you know, looking, funnily enough, reading in the paper this morning about all this um, drama with the NRL and, and videos and culture and stuff, and there's a piece about um, some young footballer in one of the Sydney clubs trying to impress his older uh, team members mm-hmm. by showing him some sort of video. Mm-hmm. And the older team member said, mate, we can give it continental about that, you, you train hard and be a part of the team. So, you know, that older guy I'm gathering has had a good influence by what he said. So, I'm sure I had conversations with, say, Mark Lone, mm. 
when he was my captain in the early days, mm. had he been different and less strong-willed and mature than he was, mm. he might have influenced me in another way. So I think all those things uh, help create what you are, and then you've got to you've got to work yourself out on the back of that. When you're when you're picking a team of players, and they could be could be workmates or they could be players in a sporting team. Is there a specific trait that stands out most to you as valuable? Um, nothing that no one has ever not thought of before, and that's yeah. honesty. Okay. <laughs> Just tell the truth. Yeah. Um, and I think if, if you know that someone's telling the truth, you've got a good foundation from which to build or, or decide to go your separate ways. But um, if deception's involved, no one knows where they stand. Yeah. It's you know it's it's not as straightforward. It's a piece of cake to say just always tell the truth and be honest and you know, put my hand up as much as more than anyone that have not always done it. Yeah. Uh, and no one does. But I think the attempt to do it is what matters. And you know the more you try, the more you'll succeed. Mm. And what's it been like transitioning into retirement? Um, well, the key is to be busy and have things to do, yeah. um, which I've succeeded in. As, as one of my rugby mates rang me when I retired and he congratulated, and I always wonder why people congratulate when you retire, but he didn't. He said he ran into his a mate of his who walked down the street and just retired, and he said, um, he said, mate, how's retirement going? You're busy. And the bloke said, busy? I've had to put a bloke on. So I'm not quite that busy, um, but I've got enough, you know, I've got something every day that is worthwhile. And I think, you know, getting back to, to um, I could probably tell you a Mitchie note, um, uh, getting back to, to professional sport or whatever, the movement, which is similar to retirement, the movement from professional sport or anything like that into a more mundane existence is what's important that they, you know, it's the same deal one has to do in retirement, make sure that they can keep getting something out of what they're now doing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of retired people get pretty lonely and a bit, you know, just lost for stuff to do, but I'm not sure that matters as much as those younger people in their 30s who have then got a long, long life ahead and they've got yes. to establish what they really want to get out of life now that they're no longer a superstar footy player or whatever that might be. Yeah. So that side of, and I think most professional sports are trying to look at that, but um, the individuals have to be very conscious of it and those around them that uh, they have things to do which are important to them. And is there anything in particular on a daily basis that stands out to you as something that lights you up? Um, well, I, I'm involved in a little bit of teaching, just teach, it's a teacher aid okay. kind of thing. Yeah. And that I look forward to that. You mm -hmm. know, it's Because again, as I said, I, I feel that there's some sort of vocational concept there and, and those kids, you know, you see a bit of progress, you feel as if you've done good. It's not sort of Mother Teresa kind of stuff because it's ultimate, well, even Mother Teresa, I'm sure she did, she felt good at the stuff she did, so it's not hard to do, mm. you know. So you say, oh, you do some teaching, oh, aren't you wonderful? You're not wonderful. You know, help, helping myself, but being busy, I really like doing it. It's a bit like saying, you know, aren't you wonderful because you play golf twice a week, you know, because <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Um, so... You know that's that's something that I really enjoy, and is not completely about me. Mm. Um, 
So you know that's that's a nice thing to do, and I can you know I can fit it into my time. I don't. You know, it's not a sort of sixty-hour-a-week slaving away. Martin books like most teachers have to do. You know, yeah. Teachers get a bad rap by and large, yeah. um, but they deserve much better. So um, yeah, that's I'm enjoying that. It's part of the retirement. Mm. And how do you compare <coughs> coaching a sporting team versus teaching a classroom? Um, uh, well, you don't have a weekly win or loss, which is tough on the coaches. I mean, it can be more, you know, teaching is a more evolutionary kind of show where, you know, I mean, I think, I think parents expect too much of teachers nowadays and aren't prepared to let their kid learn a bit on their way. They, they think every kid is special, but parents who think their kid's more special than the next one aren't a great help to teachers who are trying to be the best. And not every teacher's good mm. and conscientious, but I think the majority are. And, and so um, coaches are judged on the scoreboard, and I think you can be very good, a very good coach and, and maybe not win many games. Um, so that's the problem with with a teacher over, I think over a long period of time, it's it's worked out that you're a really good teacher, mm. you're a mediocre teacher, or you're not a very good teacher. Mm. Um, whereas a coach can be a very good coach, and he'll be flicked in a minute, or she'll be flicked in a minute because you know this, the scoreboard doesn't yeah. tell the story. Um, that you know there is a scoreboard in education with marks, obviously. Mm. But it's a bigger show than that, um, and I think the good teachers get that sorted. But what they do is maximise the child's capacity, and and that that's something that just is always there for good good teachers. So um, the the coaching, you know, I think there is a lot, and you'll find a lot of teachers involved in coaching. I think Anthony Sobel, the new Broncos guys, are a teacher, and you go through the number of people who coach professionally in a lot of sports and you know they have a teaching background. So I, I think the two are, are aligned um, and there's pressure on both. Uh, the week-to-week -week pressure is the, the um, professional footy coach. Mm. And what do you think, um, regardless of sporting code, makes a good coach? Uh, can I go back to what we said before about listening? Yeah. Um, that, I mean you've got to understand the game. Uh, you know, Alan Jones was our coach and we had quite a lot of success and, you know, people have asked about um, his influence. Obviously, he can talk and influence and motivate, um, but that, you know, motivation from a, a coaching point of view and saying the right things and getting you all pumped up, well, that'll last all about 23 seconds once you're on, once you're on the field. Yeah. You then, you know, once you get whacked on your back by some eight-foot, you know, leviathan, doesn't help much that the words were good, yeah. um, but he understood the game. He understood how to maximise training runs. He got people in the short, his shortcomings. He got people to help him. Mm. Um, one person in particular. Um, so and and he understood the nuances of the game tactically. He, he was he was fine. Um, so you know you've got to you you've got to have the foundation of understanding the game and, and being able to move with how the game moves. Uh, in terms of the way games, sports change, um, but then you've got to have empathy for the individuals involved, understand what makes them tick, understand that sometimes 
it's all got to be about the team and you've got to make people fit into the team environment and within that also understand that you know one or two or three or four at various times might need a bit more caressing or kicks up the backside or so it's you know there's a bit of psychology well there's a lot of psychology involved um, and that you know that again involves listening and and caring I mean I don't think you're going to get a really good coach I mean a lot of them are driven by ego um, but I don't think if you're solely driven by ego as a coach you're going to get very far and so we might wrap it up considering you've got a few things to do but before we do is there a certain project that you've worked on in your life that stands out to you as particularly meaningful and it could be a, a, something that's happened over a few years that you've worked towards or no, um, I, I don't. I'm not a sort of project or a goal-setting kind of person. Never have been. Okay. Um, I, I don't, and that, some, in some ways, might be a bit of a shortcoming. I, I think if somebody, you know, when I was young, said, "Look, you know, set a goal, get into goal setting, and want to do this by this time or that." It, it might have helped. I just took each day as it came and, and felt that it. Um, you know, I'd do what I had to do. I semi-regret that I never sort of stretched myself. Like, you know, I'd train. If we had a training run, I'd do exactly what I was told. Would I do any extras? No, unless yeah. someone forced me to do it. And, you know, in a sense, I regret that I didn't have that mentality and no one sort of said, well, you know, push yourself beyond what... You know, Chris couldn't go that far. Wouldn't you want to be better than Chris? Why don't you go that far? And, yeah. I, you know, I was happy to be along with... Whoever. So, um, you know, I've never thought about projects or goals, but I, I think if I was advising kids now, I'd say, yeah, definitely seek, try goals. And this, you know, I don't have a project, but I like what I said earlier to, you know, help um, other people get maximise what they want. And there's nothing, well, there's a lot of things that annoy me more, but from an expression point of view, nothing annoys me more than people say, you know, if you try hard enough and you work hard enough, you'll get what you want. Well, you won't. You know, there's mm. no guarantees about it. You can work your backside off mm. and you want to play for Australia at tennis. If you can't lay bat on ball, yeah, you, you know, racket on ball, you're not going to play for Australia. So what I would say, look, the notion of that's quite good, work hard and hard, but if you see improvement every day mm. in something, that's a goal in itself. So you've worked your whatever off to get to a state, okay, you didn't get picked for Australia, but gee, I'm better than I was when I started. Yeah. So so that's the achievement. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, that that's a project everybody should try and have. And I guess in some way, even at my age and stage, you know, you're still trying to be a bit better than you were yesterday. So it might be as, as selfish and self-oriented as golf. It mm -hmm. might be about more, you know, altruistic and meaningful things with other people. But, um, you know, again, as I say, I've never thought about having a project, but um, somewhere in the back of my mind, I like to make sure that, you know, today's good and hopefully something you do is better tomorrow. Mm. And obviously we hear about people having goals and dreams and working towards certain things by certain times, timelines. Do you think when you were amongst other high achievers, do you think the majority worked that way or more like the way where you worked, where you sort of showed up every day, did the best you could and then 
if it worked out, it worked yeah. out. No, I think the majority were like me. Yeah. You know, there was a, there's a percentage who, who would probably put in the extras. Yeah. Um, and I think nowadays, if, if we were playing now in that professional era, it would be, I think, hammered down, down our throats that we, um, we needed to do the extras. But our extras in those days were the work you did, you know, or mm -hmm. your study. Yeah. So your training, and then you've got all these other things on the side. Well, actually, the rugby was the stuff on the side, yeah, yeah. but you're working and you're studying and if you had families, all that was, so you didn't really have, you know, if you, it was an excuse, but you didn't have that, that time. Now, if those guys like me who just went, did as much as they had to do, yeah. were in the professional environment, I think you'd find they'd be more willing to, to do the, the extra work. But, um, you know, again, and I think you'd be, they'd be talk more about dreams and goals. We just, we, we were a week-to-week -week team, you know, we, mm -hmm. didn't, we didn't think about beyond. We just, here you playing on Saturday, we'll see what we can do about that, enjoy it mm -hmm. Saturday night and then front up on the following, following week and do it all again. And so, based on that, were Saturday nights with your mates and your teammates important? Um, oh yeah, gorgeous. Um, you yeah, know, that was... That was the fun. I mean, you did the did the work, and the work was fun because it's a sport. Mm. You know, you're mucking around, you're doing a bit. But then getting together, and as I, you know, told you that story in Aberdeen, a lot of those uh, representative games would get together with the opposition, and you know, you'd have a few beers, and not that beers are a necessary part of it, but they sometimes caused a few giggles, and yeah. we had fun, and um, and that was, you know, that's why I loved it. I mean, if I'd have played the footy, and then gone home, I wouldn't have kept playing footy as long as I did. You know, we, we had great times and, and met lots and lots of terrific people and everyone was involved. Your own families were involved and you know, it wasn't a, um, you know, this is us and we're not letting people in show. It was quite the opposite. So yeah. that, it was, you know, it's a great time. We might just wrap it up there. Um, and thanks very much for your time. Pleasure, Chris. Yeah, but um, I thought I'd just remind you that every first Thursday of every month I host beers with mates and we may not all play sports together, we may not all watch sports together, we may not even be interested in sport but it's a chance to have a beer or not drink at all or have something else to drink and just catch up, meet some people that you may not have met before, connect with people you haven't seen in a while and just generally enjoy ourselves. As Andrew said, that was a big part of the enjoyment of sport for him and um, I think it, just because we're not professional sports people doesn't mean we can't enjoy a lot of that. Would you agree? Completely. We weren't professional either, we were amateurs. It's a good fun. <laughs> Professionals should do more of it. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. Thanks, Chris.